Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash CSV. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Taiho Oncology Europe GmbH and Servier. Welcome to this Peer Voice On Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises four presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Okay, so good morning, everybody. Um, it's really great to see so many um, people already here um, at, the, at the start of ESMOGI in Barcelona. Um, and I would really like to welcome you all. I'm together with my colleagues Angela Lamarca and Nicola Nomano, and I think we have um, a very interesting educational program um, prepared for you. We are really trying to cover uh, the whole patient's um, journey. So Angela Lamarca will uh, start off with the unmet needs, diagnosis, and what do we need to do and consider before we can start um, treatment. A big focus on, on, on this in this symposium is on uh, uh, targeted therapies. And to do that, we really need to understand molecular testing in cholangiocarcinoma, which is really of utmost importance today. And Nicola Nomano will give us an overview on, on molecular testing in cholangiocarcinoma. I will share the data that have already been published. It will be a lot of phase two data, but I think you really all need to be aware of what do we have available today? And not all of this is um, approved in, in all countries so far. Then we have some um, case discussions at the end and, of course, a Q&A session at the end. And it should be as interactive um, as possible. And we will start with the patient journey. And I'm looking forward to the talk from Angela Lamarca, who's an oncologist from Madrid here in Spain. Thank you, and for that introduction and for the invitation for being here today. So we are going to discuss over the coming 15 minutes about uh, some of the challenges that we are having from diagnosis to treatment when we are uh, really managing patients with um, with cholangiocarcinoma challenges and unmet needs, which, as you will see, there are quite a lot. So when we speak about cholangiocarcinoma, we always think that they are very rare malignancies, but the, the truth is that they are not probably as rare as we think. They are probably patients that are very spread out between different centers, but if we centralize all of them, they are a, a big proportion of, 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 uh, of um, digestive malignancies. So they represent 15 of all primary hepatic tumors and 3% of all gastrointestinal cancers, but it's also true that the incidence is increasing and that we are seeing more and more of these patients. And this is uh, really important for the clinical trials that are happening at the moment. There is a lot of effort on the anatomical classification. And for many years, we were talking about biliary tract. Then we started to talk about maybe cholangiocarcinoma, splitting gallbladder. And right now, it's really important that in, a, in our daily practice, we make a differentiation between intrahepatic, perihilar, and a distal cholangiocarcinoma. This is important because they have different clinical presentations, different, different molecular alterations as well. So I don't think it's acceptable anymore to say biliary tract 
malignancy or hepatobiliary tumors, we really have to uh, take it down to the details of whether it's a cholangiocarcinoma and if it is cholangiocarcinoma, which subgroup of cholangiocarcinoma is really the one that we are treating. I did mention that they are different from a clinical point of view and they are also different from a molecular point of view. And we see this very clearly in this slide for patients with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Some of the molecular alterations that we may identify are mainly IDH and uh, FGFR2 fusions, while for extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma or distal cholangiocarcinoma and gallbladder, what we have is more of the alteration, for example, of the HER2 pathway. So understanding where the tumor is coming from and where the primary tumor is coming from is also um, linking with the molecular alterations that we may identify when we do molecular profiling. Other challenges for the diagnosis are related to the fact that the symptoms are very uh, non-specific and this is a big issue for early diagnosis. This is the reason why big proportion of patients with cholangiocarcinoma and biliary tract tumors in general are diagnosed late. Around 80% of the patients are not going to be resectable when they are first diagnosed. Because of this delay in diagnosis, they have a, a poorer performance status and around 20% of the patients may not be fit for, for the start in any form of treatment. So again, another big, uh, big challenge. In the clinical trials, there is a little bit of variability between how many of each subgroup of cholangiocarcinoma we are, we are seeing, but um, based on some of the registry data that we have, uh, it looks like the intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma are a big proportion, and uh, also interesting to see how a big, big proportion of patients are not really patients where surgery can be performed, which is a very big issue. Regarding the diagnosis, when patients are presented with these unspecific symptoms, the first step is usually to do a radiological assessment. And in the radiology, it's quite challenging really to call on whether it's definitely a biliary tract tumor, a cholangiocarcinoma eh, or not. So we have eh, sometimes difficult anatomic locations to see eh, clearly a tumor mass, especially when we have uh, an extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. We have, as we mentioned previously, the very unspecific symptoms that could include abdominal pain, uh, sweats, cachexia, symptoms that could appear with many other uh, pro health problems as well. An additional issue that is happening and becoming more and more uh, known and better understood is the differential diagnosis with other malignancies. And I think in our MDTs, we very rarely used to think about cholangiocarcinoma when we were seeing or discussing the case of a patient with liver metastasis or liver lesions. And more and more, we know that uh, for tumors that may have been classified as cancer of unknown primary, maybe what we really have is an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma with satellite liver lesion. So bear in mind the differential diagnosis between intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma and cancer of a non-primary because a lot of these tumors are actually cholangiocarcinoma. These are, again, the data from the ENSCA registry, and just for you to understand how the flow of the patients may, may, may be, I think is a big, big issue, the fact that almost one-fourth of the patients, when they are diagnosed, are not fit enough for any treatment. 20% of the patients in this registry were being treated with best supportive care, a very big issue. If we improve diagnosis, we are very likely to reduce the number of patients that are never getting into treatment. And please look into the media 
median overall survival of these patients is only four months. So we really need to improve and uh, the outcome for for this for this group. As we mentioned previously, please note that in this registry, the data may be slightly biased because of the uh, people or the departments that were participating. In this registry, we have 50% of patients who had surgery. This is probably not reflection of our clinical practice, and we know, and we have robust data to say that if you take all the patients into account, it's around 20%. But what I think is important is the breakdown between the R0 and R1. Big proportion of patients with an R1 resection, almost 20%, and the impact of this on the survival. So having an incomplete resection with an R1 affected margins is really uh, reducing your median overall survival from 45 to 24 months. So very important to have good resections and to have resections with an R0 margin. And if we cannot achieve that, I believe that there will be some very interesting trials coming into downstate in a chemotherapy, for example. Not a standard of care at the moment, but again, something that we must improve. Better outcomes after surgery. A proportion of patients, quite small, are having an R2 resection. I will say that this is quite a good news in the way that at least we are not doing surgery on these patients. So I think we are good at identifying the patients that are resectable where we can achieve an R0 on, or an R1 resection. Very, very few patients are undergoing surgery with, uh, with residual disease afterwards, which I believe is good practice for cholangiocarcinoma and is probably higher proportion in other malignancies. And uh, the proportion of patients who have active palliative treatment is in, in this registry third I will say that in our in our practice is much higher. Remember, around 80% of the patients are not are not going to be resectable. 20% not fit for treatment. So that will leave us around 60% of the patients uh, that uh, will really have palliative treatment. This is uh, the most uh, likely outcome for a patient with cholangiocarcinoma nowadays. If they get that treatment, it's going to be with palliative aim. The median overall survival for these patients still remains around one year. We have had a lot of changes in the treatment options, but we still are not really improving these long-term outcomes for our patients, another very important unmet need. So there are some um, issues or some concepts that I think we are understanding more uh, over the last few years around cholangiocarcinoma. So one of them, for example, I mentioned previously how important it is to state the primary tumor, whether it's intrahepatic or extrahepatic, from a molecular point of view and a clinical point of view, but it's also important from a prognostic point of view. And when we are offering a palliative treatment to our patients, it's really important also to, to discuss prognosis or at least to offer a discussion about prognosis. And we must understand that patients with an intrahepatic angiocarcinoma have a better survival compared to other biliary tract cancer. This is important for individual patients when we discuss prognosis and for planning further steps, but also important to take into account when we are putting the, the results of some of the trials into perspective. For example, the studies where we are focusing mainly on intrahepatic angiocarcinoma, for example, the FGFR2 fusion studies in the second line setting. Another important topic is the presence of the liver metastasis or the satellite lesions. Again, something that happens mainly in patients with intrahepatic angiocarcinoma. Around 50% of the patients with intrahepatic angiocarcinoma may have liver predominant disease. And again, something relevant for individual patients, these patients have a worse prognosis compared to patients who do not have these liver lesions. Um, this may be something that we think is... Um, 
common sense, but the truth is that if we look into the current staging of intrahepatical angiocarcinoma, patients who have liver-only disease with satellite liver lesions are considered early stage, which is not really reflecting the clinical behavior and the natural behavior of this situation. So again, important to understand and something that we may need to take into account when we are planning for further staging systems in the coming years. Well, we did mention that majority of our patients are going to receive treatment in the palliative setting. A small proportion will have curative surgery. So what happens after the curative surgery? The, we now have the data from the BILCAP clinical trials supporting the use of capcitabine. There are some interesting clinical trials in the adjuvant setting that may change this practice in the coming years, but that is not still the case, and capcitabine remains the standard of care, fully, fully accepting that is not perfect, that, that we definitely must improve the outcomes. As you can see, a lot of changes in the palliative setting beyond the adjuvant therapy. We have a lot of targeted therapies that are now uh, making into uh, the, our guidelines and our treatment pathways. And we also have the immunotherapy incorporated to the chemotherapy in the first line setting. So very, very good news for all our patients with cholangiocarcinoma. And these are the, um, the, the, the latest ESMO guidelines updated uh, on 2022, 2023. And what we see is how these targeted therapies are now incorporated after progression to chemotherapy with immunotherapy in the first-line setting, how we can really break down bimolecular alteration and target um, a specific treatment options for these patients. If we don't have a targetable alteration, FOLFOX is considered the standard of care with irinotican-based chemotherapy therapy being considered as other alternatives. And we see here the adjuvant capsitabine as a standard. I will just show you some of the data we have. This is the data from BILCAP showing the benefit for capsitabine over observation. This is the data from the Durbalumab, one of the immunotherapy options that we have combined with platin and gemcitabine. This is now FDA and EMA approved and shows an improvement not only in overall survival, but also in progression-free survival and response rate when incorporated and when added to platin and gemcitabine in the first-line setting and is considered in consider the new standard of care for our patients. It's still not available in all countries, but hopefully it will be a reality soon for all patients with cholangiocarcinoma. Another option of immunotherapy, this one, these data were just presented earlier this year, is still uh, looking for approval, so it's not a, a, an approved indication as yet, but positive data for Pembrolizumab, very similar study designed to the TOPAS, looking into overall survival with improvement on overall survival for uh, adding Pembrolizumab to cisplatin and gemcitabine. And I think a very important message is the fact that we do really need to do molecular profiling for our patients. And why should we do this? We should do this because we are very likely to find some alterations that we could target. This targeting may happen within or outside clinical trials. And I accept uh, that it's not always easy to make uh, these treatments available for our patients. But I find this data interesting. If we have a targetable alteration and we are able to find a treatment for that patient and uh, Nicola will later on go through this data more carefully, we can see how the patient is really having a better outcome. So doing the molecular profiling is the first step for that. And again, as you can see, it's not only one targetable alteration, we have multiple, and really nice to see how these are really coming into the reality with FDA and EMA approval for some of them. Moving into the next uh, topic is about uh, when do you offer molecular testing. So I hope everyone is really leaving the room thinking, yes, it's worth doing the molecular profiling. 
So we are now moving to the next uh, topic, and Nicole is going to talk to us about the unlocking new doors keys for to optimize molecular testing in patients with cholangiocarcinoma. Thank you. Thanks, Angela. So basically, I'll try to discuss the different options for genomic profiling of cholangiocarcinoma, starting some from frequently asked questions that are really true questions that some colleagues, some oncologists have made to me, to me during the time. And the first point is uh, which actual alteration we, should, we, we need to test in patients with cholangiocarcinoma in our routine clinical practice. Now, as already shown by uh, Angela Lamarca, uh, there are a number of actual alterations that we can find in uh, interhepatic cholangiocarcinoma, exhepatic cholangiocarcinoma, but also in gallbladder cancer. And actually, I remind you that uh, with the uh, actual mutation, we refer to this genomic alteration for which a therapeutic intervention is possible, either directly or indirectly. But which one we need to test? Now, if you go to the <coughs> ASMO guidelines for biliary tract cancer, but I would say in any uh, ASMO guidelines, you would find that the different biomarkers are ranked based on ESCAT, the ESMO scale for clinical actionability for molecular targets. What ESCAT does simply ranks the genomic alteration based on the clinical data available, on the clinical evidence that the presence of these biomarkers really predict in response to a matched target therapy. And so in level one, you will find the targets that are <clears throat> ready for clinical implementation in level two investigational drugs for which you need additional data and then level three, four, five, lower level of evidence. Now, what ESMO recommends is that all level one uh, alteration should be tested in routine clinical practice and as already introduced by Dr. Lamarca in biliary tract cancer we have six level one alteration IDH1, FGF2, MSI, NTRAC, PROF and R2. Now please note that only for four of these uh, genomic alterations for these biomarkers we do have EMA approved drug but still the recommendation is to test all these biomarkers because maybe patients can access to clinical trials or to expanded access program or other ways to access to, to, to treatment. What's important to underline is that these genomic alterations refer are of different types. For IDH1 and BRAF, we have a single nuclear variance, or if you want misinterpretations. For ERP2 or RB2, we have gene amplification or copy number alteration. Uh, the activation of FGFR2 and the NTRAC occurs through chromosomal rearrangement that lead to fusion genes that leads to the acoustic activation of the kinase. And finally, microcentral instability is a complex biomarker that's a consequence of uh, the inactivation of one of the proteins of the mismatch repair. And this leads us to the second question, which techniques can we use to, uh, for genomic profiling of cholangiocarcinoma? Well, I'm not going to have time to get uh, into the detail of this busy slide, but basically you have two different strategies that you can use for genomic profiling of cholangiocarcinoma. On one hand, you can use uh, conventional technologies that are able to assess a single biomarker per test, immunohistochemistry, FISH, or real-time PCR, or you can use NGS. The advantage of NGS is that you can assess different types of genomic alteration in multiple genes in a single analysis.
Now, NGS is a rather you know, generic term, and what we use in uh, clinical practice or uh, in clinical research is targeted sequencing, which means sequencing of a limited number of genes using gene panels. Now, the commercial available panels are large panels, there are small panels, there are, they use different technologies for sequencing <coughs> in library preparation, hybrid capture, amplicon base, or anchor multiplex PCR, and they can use either DNA and or RNA sequencing in particular for fusion detection. But let's try to see what really ESMO recommends. So first point, ESMO recommends to use NGS. And this is because when you have a high number of biomarkers that need to be tested, only using NGS, you manage really to test all the patient, all the biomarkers necessary for the patients in a limited time frame. And in addition, the use of NGS also allows to optimize the use of the tissue because when there is very little tissue available, only with NGS you will be able to cover all the biomarkers. Now what ESMO recommends is to use small panels that are limited to, to level one alteration, but still, if there are no additional costs or if you are in a academic centers with clinical trials available, it's uh, acceptable to use larger panels and RNA-based NGS can be used as well as DNA-based. What's the difference between DNA and RNA? sequencing. Now, RNA sequencing is particularly important for fusion gene detection. When there is a, a, a chromosomal rearrangement leading to a fusion gene, in most of cases, not all, but most of cases, the breakpoint occurs in the intronic regions. So at the DNA level, you will have your gene of interest, in this case FGFR, the uh, partner, and in the middle, these intronic regions can, can be quite long. Now, if these intronic regions are long, you can have a false negative result of your test. These problems are solved if you uh, sequence RNA, because in the mature RNA, these intronic regions are spliced out, are removed, and therefore it's much easier to detect uh, the uh, fusions. In this slide, I try to summarize which are the current available commercial, uh, uh, commercial tests for uh, uh, NGS testing can be used also in cholangiocarcinoma. Uh, now, there are some partners that are hybrid capture based and use only DNA. As I told you, RNA provides a better coverage for fusion as compared with DNA, but the DNA is more stable than RNA. If you are dealing with old symbols, RNA can be degraded and RNA testing can fail, so DNA in this case has some advantages. The majority of panels that your labs will be using or your pathologists will be using are based on both DNA and RNA. DNA sequencing is used to assess mutations, sequence nuclear variants, and copy number alteration, whereas RNA sequencing is used for fusion detection. Now, the hybrid capture-based tests have the advantage to have a better coverage of fusions as compared with amplicon-based that can detect only known fusions. However, the amplicon-based work better even with a low input of DNA and RNA. So if you have a small biopsy, the amplicon-based will be more effective. And finally, there are some anchored multiplex sequencing RNA-only base panels that are very good to detect fusions because they are partner independent, but will not provide information on copy number alteration and limit information also on uh, single nuclear variants. Some of these patterns, for example, do not cover IDH1 mutations, and this has to be taken in consideration. So basically, there is no ideal panel, and all reference centers should be able to at least a couple of different technologies to cover all the needs of testing in cholangiocarcinoma. 
when is the best time to test patients? Well, this has been already addressed by uh, Angela, by Arndt. Uh, you need, I mean, this also you will find in uh, the uh, guidelines for MESMO, is better to test patients at diagnosis because of metastatic disease, because if you wait that the patient goes on progression, then you ask for NGS. It will take maybe two, three weeks because you have to go back in the archive, take the samples, cut the slides, and make the test, and this might be timing is not acceptable for our patients. However, some colleagues raised the point that these patients are receiving a first line of chemotherapy, maybe also immunotherapy. So is this changing the genomic landscape of the tumor? Can we really use the tissue that we took at the diagnosis? Well, the point is that these mutations, IDH1, BRAF, FGFR2, we think that we have data suggesting that these are early events in the pathogenesis of cholangiocarcinoma. An early event means a clonal mutation, a mutation that's present in 100% of tumor cells, and you see some data here on the, the left part of this slide. So, and we have no evidence in cholangiocarcinoma and in any other tumor type that chemotherapy or immunotherapy may affect you know, the expression of this clonal mutation. So, bona fide, we can use the tissue that we obtain at diagnosis for molecular profile or for targets that would be used for second-line treatment. And the last point is about liquid biopsy. Now, all my colleagues are fascinated about use of liquid biopsy, and I work a lot on liquid biopsy as well, because actually liquid biopsy has several advantages as compared to tissue biopsy. It's very fast, it's a non-invasive method, you can repeat several times, and really will provide a snapshot of the genomic alteration of the tumor and the time in which you make the analysis. However, we must not underestimate the challenges of liquid biopsy testing. In particular, in the blood of our patients, usually we find only a few nanograms of circulating tumor DNA, the DNA that is released by the tumor, and this circulating tumor DNA is highly diluted in normal DNA, which leads to a very small tumor fraction. Now what happens? There are several evidence, several data, that have clearly demonstrated that when the tumor fraction is low, then the sensitivity of lipid biopsy is, is low as well. And in particular, if you, we move to a complex biomarks such as gene fusions or copy number alteration or even MSII detection at low tumor fraction, the fraction of false negative results is very high. These are some examples for a colorectal cancer here. In addition, the... Uh, some panels might not adequately cover fusions. This, for example, is a study that was recently published. On the left, you see that the sensitivity of this panel for a number of mutations was pretty good, but uh, was uh, quite disappointing for the FGFR2 fusion. If you go on the right part of this panel, the other histogram shows that, however, the sensitivity for BIC1 FGFR2 fusion was not bad, almost 60%, whereas it was only 3% for non-BIC1 FGFR2 fusions. Most likely, this panel has been designed long time ago before we discovered that FGFR2 has over 150 different partners and so this is why this type of analysis will lead to a very disappointing sensitivity for the FGFR2 fusions. As a consequence of this data, the current recommendation of ESMO is that tissue testing still remains the golden standard for molecular profiling of any type of tumor diagnosis, including cholangiocarcinoma. However, if tissue is not available, or if tissue testing fails, or if you need a fast resource, then liquid biopsy can be an option.
I would say well, that many of these limits of liquid biopsy will be solved during the time. We have now new technologies, some, there are some preliminary data suggesting that these new panels have an improved sensitivity, and I think that we will be using more and more liquid biopsy in the management of cholangiocarcinoma patients, for example, even to identify mechanism of resistance to target therapy that may allow maybe second, third line target therapy, having available different inhibitors, something that we have already experienced in lung cancer, maybe we can reproduce also in cholangiocarcinoma. This is my summary. So in patients with cholangiocarcinoma, we must uh, screen for uh, the ADH1 and VRAF mutations, FGFR2 and N-TRAC fusions, R2 amplification, and MSI status. Uh, genomic profiling should be performed at the axon metastatic disease, and based on his more recommendation and the experience of all the labs, we need to use NGS. We must really push to implement NGS for testing of these patients. RNA sequencing allows a better coverage of fusions as compared with DNA sequencing, and finally, liquid biopsy may be used for genomic profiling of conchocarcinoma if tissue is not available, but we must be aware of the low sensitivity of these techniques, in particular for fusion genes. Having said that, I conclude my talk. Thank you very much for your attention, and I leave the floor to Arne Vogel to discuss the evidence of uh, the use of target therapy in the ETA. Yeah, thank you very much. So I, I think this were really two excellent talks, and the testing point is really so important. And I think what Nicola has shown you is um, is sometimes specifically at the beginning confusing because there are so many different tests, so many better, uh, different vendors you could use. But it's really critically important that you talk to your pathologist or molecular pathologist about the test they are using because specifically for the fusions, and these are not only fusions but also in-frame deletions and all kinds of different alterations, it's really important that you apply the correct test. And there are so many tests out there which do detect some of the fusions, but not all of them. Yeah? And since we have now more than 200 different fusion partners for um, uh, FGFR2, for example, it's really important to have a test that detects all of these independent, independent of the fusion partners. And, I mean, it's a challenging way, but you need to go through it and you need to talk to your pathologist. Um, otherwise, you will really miss a lot of opportunities. I think we really have made progress. It's still a devastating disease, no question about that. And um, there's still a lot to understand the prognostic and predictive impact of the genetic alterations. But we have now a very clear understanding of the gen genetic alterations we can find in cholangiocarcinoma with all the different nuances between intrahepatic, extrahepatic, and gallbladder cancer. And it's, for example, important also to consider HER2 immunohistochemistry in extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma and gallbladder cancer which is rarely or not so frequently seen in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. So thinking about the anatomic location is also important when you think about the genetic alterations. And luckily, we have seen some approvals, not only from FDA, also EMA is approving drugs based on single-arm phase two studies, which I think is a great success. It's really challenging. We are talking about a rare tumor. We have small subgroups, and to perform these traditional phase three studies, randomized studies, it's, it's, it's challenging, yeah, and we can discuss it later on. Um, therefore, it's good to see that also EMA is moving and we do can apply these effective drugs also in, in, in Europe. 
Um, now I want to go through to some of the um, um, trials that have been important. It's a lot of Kaplan-Meier curves. I'm, I'm, I apologize for that. But I think it's important that you do see what can be expected. And I think we also need to manage our expectations to the targeted therapies, both that we do not overemphasize, but also that we do not underemphasize the efficacy of these um, drugs and treatments. And that we also understand the heterogeneity uh, in these defined, uh, genetically defined subgroups. So having um, proven the, 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 um, the, uh, that there's a genetic alteration that not, does not necessarily grant success. Yeah? So even if we have a specific alteration, um, patients may, may not respond to our targeted therapy, um, which is also important to keep in mind. We do have, as I said, a lot of phase two studies, but also one phase three study, which is the Clarity study, actually the only phase three study we have in the second line um, settings for targeted therapy. It's ivozidinib for patients with um, IDH1 fusions, which we can detect in around 15 uh, yeah, 15% of patients with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas uh, and probably only in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. This leads to a um, neomorphic activity of the enzyme, the appearance and the accumulation of an oncometabolite to hydroxyglutarate, which has been implicated in carcinogenesis also in preclinical models. With ibozidinib, we have a very um, focused drug which can really inhibit this activity and the hydroxyglutarate levels really go down um, immediately. Uh, the primary endpoint of this study was progression-free survival. There was a lot of crossover, so um, you will see the overall survival data are, um, uh, are a little bit uh, um, diluted by this crossover, of course. Um, here you can see the, the, the progression-free survival, the primary endpoint. I have said before the hazard ratio is exciting, 0.37. But what we also have to acknowledge, and this is something we also see with other targeted therapies, which we even see with immunotherapy and MSI tumors, not all patients are responding. And here, around um, 20 to, to 30 percent of patients do not respond despite having the genetic alterations and despite the fact that we are reducing two hydroxyglutarate levels. However, there are a lot of patients that really respond nicely and, as you can see, for a long time. And this um, overall um, uh, improved progression-free survival rate also translates in a longer overall survival. As I said before, high crossover rate, so there have been um, different tests been used to better understand the, the impact of the treatment in, in, on overall survival. And when you do this adjusted calculation, you can see that the overall survival is almost doubled from five to 10 months, which is, I, I think, clearly meaningful for this um, disease in which we have a median overall survival still of around only one year for the first-line trials. Of course, there are some uh, toxicities as associated to all these targeted therapies. As you can see here, there's a lot of um, GI toxicity and, uh, or mainly GI toxicity and fatigue associ associated with ibozidinib, but overall, I would think it's a really well-tolerated um, uh, treatment for patients with IDH1 mutations. So with this, I would like to move on to the second most frequent genetic alteration in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. FGFR2 alterations can be found in around 14% of cases, but not all are fusions and rearrangement. Around 10% are fusions and rearrangements. Some patients have amplifications, some have mutations, and there are different types of mutations, um, in-frame deletions or um, um, activating mutations, which may also respond to 
treatment, but the majority of, of trials have really focused on patients with um, FGFR2 fusions and rearrangement, which are clear drivers in, in, in BTC, but also other tumor types. We do have now a lot of drugs available. Um, as I said before, only phase two evidence, but you can see it's a very consistent evidence, and I think there's no doubt that these drugs are um, effective. And I will um, briefly discuss some of them um, for which we have also seen approval um, in, in, in Europe and in the United States. First, we have now different generations of FGFR inhibitors. The first line reversible inhibitors are, for example, um, pemigatinib, infigratinib, derasantinib, and then we have the more uh, second, third line generation of inhibitors, which have more and more activity against also the resistance mutations, which means, and I will come back to this later, that we can apply sequential therapy for patients with FGFR2 fusions and rearrangements. And these newer drugs are irreversible, which really allow a very good target um, inhibition. When we now look at the um, uh, efficacy of the different receptors, we have um, four receptors, FGFR1, 2, 3, 4. The main driver is FGFR2. I mean, when we have these fusions, the first-generation inhibitors are PAN inhibitors, so we have also um, activity against FGFR1 and 4, which implicates um, toxicity, off-target toxicity, which we would, of course, like to avoid. And the newer drugs like Relay 4008, they might be not more active towards um, um, FGFR2, but they are specific, So, which means we have now uh, drugs that are more specific on FGFR2 and have higher efficacy against the resistance mutation. So the field is clearly moving on. The jury is still out. What is the best first-line option? So we definitely need to, to wait for more um, um, data specifically from the newer drugs. One of the first drugs that was approved based on a phase two study, both by FDA and EMA, was pemigatinib. The FIGHT 202 study um, included three groups of patients with fusions of um, rearrangements, other FGF alterations, and patients without um, alterations in the FGFR um, pathway, which was group C. It was a non-comparative trial. And primary endpoint was overall response rate. And this is a picture you will see now for all the drugs I'm introducing. It has a high efficacy disease control rate of over 80%, um, response rate um, of uh, 20%. Um, and this higher response rate also translated in an interesting progression-free survival of, of more than seven months. Um, of course, we do not have a control arm um, in this single-arm studies. Toxicity is somehow related to the uh, nature of the drug, it's a pan um, FGF inhibitor, hyperphosphatemia in around 60% um, of cases, which is related to the um, inhibition of FGFR1 signaling. And similarly, diarrhea, GI toxicity re related mainly to FGFR4 inhibition. So some of the um, um, uh, toxicity we are seeing is related to the target, basically, of um, the drugs. The next drug I would like to introduce is um, Fudibadinib has now been published in the New England Journal um, of uh, Medicine, the Phoenix CCA2 with Fudibadinib, also single arm study, response rate, overall response rate, and as promised before, a very similar picture, very high um, response rate. 
Here you can see the um, response rate going up to 41%. We have a um, duration of response of more than nine months and the um, progression-free survival of also around um, nine months. Median overall survival, 20 months, which is, again, we, we don't really know for sure whether there's any prognostic impact by the FGF2 fusions, um, but I think this response rate, PFS and um, overall survival is um, exciting and clearly um, underlined the efficacy of this drugs. Uh, safety profile is very similar to what I've shown you um, before for pemigatinib. It's related to the mechanism of action, hyperphosphatemia, diarrhea, um, GI toxicity, fatigue is something we see with all of uh, these um, drugs. One of the newer drugs, and we have seen an update of the data for Real Life 400. Eight, which is one of the newest FGFR inhibitors, which is um, in uh, clinical ev evaluation at the moment. The refocus study is a study that is still ongoing, recruiting patients. We have seen the first data from the phase one um, study, and uh, the response rate is it's really impressive. I mean, 73%, and I mean, we are talking about a response rate of 20% for chemotherapy, so very high response rate. The re duration of response is longer to what we have seen before, but not so much longer compared to the higher response rate we are seeing to the first generation of inhibitors. So here we clearly need to wait and see for and uh, need to see more data. But the disease control rate of 100% is really um, impressive, but only 11 patients so far. The toxicity profile is a little bit different because, as I said before, it's a specific FGFR2 uh, inhibitor, so we have less of this off-target toxicity um, uh, or outside of FGFR2 um, in respect to um, hyperphosphatemia and diarrhea, but the skin toxicity is really a problem, if you like, for all of these FGF inhibitors, nail toxicity. This is something where the patients really need to be educated and prepared for. I've already briefly mentioned before that we can apply sequential FGFR inhibition um, today, which is, I think, really exciting, um, specifically with the first-generation inhibitors, which do not have so much activity against the resistance mutation. Um, we frequently, specifically for those patients that respond to the treatment, on target resistance mutation. Yeah? And we have a very clear picture now, which we can detect sometimes in the liquid biopsy or if you re-biopsy the progressive de uh, deletion. So we have clearly on target resistance mutations, which prevent the binding of the drug to, um, the, FGF, uh, to, to the FGFR inhibitor. And we now have a good profile of the activity of the newer generation FGFI inhibitors towards these resistance mutations. And you can see heat maps like this, and you can see RELI, but also Futibazenib has really interesting activity against these um, resistance mutations, which are observed, for example, um, under pemigatinib or infigratinib, which now allows really um, sequential treatment, and we will discuss this later in, in our case. Um, now, moving on, but I, here again, I think it's really important to do the first biopsy, but also to do the second biopsy to understand the underlying resistance mutation, which I think is actually true for all the targeted therapies. The best evidence we have so far are for FGFR, but I think this is also true for all the other targeted therapies we can apply in BTC today. So now moving on to, um, to BRAF mutations. Um, 
here it is important to understand that we do not only have the classical BRAF V600E mutation, which we can also frequently see in melanoma or colorectal cancer. We also have a lot of non-BRAF V600E mutations, class 2, class 3 alterations, which are more difficult to treat. So clearly a case for the molecular tumor board. For the V600E, we have um, two strategies. I mean, we can either apply anti-EGFR BRAF inhibition as we do it in colorectal cancer, or we apply BRAF and MAC inhibition as we do it in melanoma. And this is the strategy we are doing in, in, in BTC. And you can see here data for dabrafenib, trametinib from the raw study, um, uh, also looking at overall response rate. Same picture as promised, very high disease control rate, um, high overall response rate, and obviously PFS and overall survival is very much in range for the other targeted therapies. So it's a very consistent picture what we see for the efficacy of the targeted therapies. Safety profile is also GI toxicity. Um, I think we, are, we know this toxicity from melanoma and, and, and colorectal cancer. Um, increase of transaminases can also occur. Um, now moving on to the next target, HER2. I think it's a very exciting drug. Um, also here we have amplification, mutations, overexpression. Um, we have data from, from in, in GI from gastric cancer, colon cancer. Now we are getting more and more data in BTC for HER2-directed therapies. From the MyPathway study, pertuzumab, prastuzumab, um, uh, interesting activity, uh, response rate around 20%. And again, I'm repeating myself, PFS and overall survival very much in line what I have shown you um, before. Diarrhea, transaminases are here, the related toxicity to these um, um, antibodies. There are more drugs in development, which I think is also very interesting. So we have the combinations with chemotherapy, targeted, therapy, uh, targeted chemotherapy for trastuzumab deruxtecane, for example, or we have newer antibodies as sanidatimab, for example, which binds to the extracellular domain 2 and 4, which are the binding domains from uh, trastuzumab and uh, pertuzumab, actually. And here we have data seen at ASCO-GI from a really large um, study. More than 80 patients have been included response rate over 40%, and you can see PFS um, six months overall survival, almost 30 months, so very much in line to what has been mentioned before. Toxicity, diarrhea, infusion-related um, um, injection, and a little bit target, uh, um, cardiac toxicity, as we um, have seen it before for um, HER2-directed um, therapies. So I think with this, I would like to conclude, and I think it's very clear. We have now a very good understanding of the genetic alterations. The main challenge is to identify these um, alterations. Then we do have approved drugs, not only in the U.S., but also in um, Europe. FGFR2 fusions, IDH from mutations are the most frequent alterations for which we have approvals in intrahepatic carcinoma. HER2 is a very interesting target, and here we might, may think about applying immunohistochemistry to identify these um, uh, alterations, and not only the first biopsy, sequential biopsy can be important to understand resistance mechanism and maybe to apply sequential um, therapies. So with this, I would like to end this part of, um, of our symposium, and I think we will now move on to some cases. So this is Tim, a 60-year-old year man with an intrahepatic carcinoma. 
the presentation as I think as you would expect it and as has been outlined by Angela Lamarca in the beginning, abdominal pain and he was basically diagnosed um, unfortunately very late so now surgery um, was um, possible um, um, unresectable intrahepatic carcinoma. he was in a good ECOG performance status now, really serious um, prior medical history he has some pack years but was otherwise a clear candidate for treatment and maybe now we are coming back a little bit to what we have discussed before. So we have the molecular tumor board, we have the um, interdisciplinary tumor board to come up to a conclusion. And maybe Angela, you can briefly comment how does the MDT really affects our um, treatment strategies and who is really important in the tumor board? Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for that summary of all the targeted therapies I think you deserve. <laughs> So going into the MDT, uh, I think uh, it's very important that we discuss all the patients in our, in, our, in our MDT where we have expertise in cholangiocarcinoma. That's, I think, another take-home message, really, really important, at least when the patients are first diagnosed. And I will also encourage when, when we are suspecting a, a tumor recurrence or maybe a disease progression. I think um, it's quite challenging to really define what we need in an MDT for cholangiocarcinoma, but we definitely need this to be really very multidisciplinary. We need the medical oncologists, but also the interventional radiologists, because we are going to have a lot of issues with the biliary tract, not only for biopsies, but for, for management of biliary obstruction, which, as you know, is something that happens very frequently. We need, of course, the surgeons, the surgical oncologists, and also our uh, our uh, medical uh, clinical uh, clin um, the, the clinical oncologist as well for consideration of of radiotherapy. Of course, when we are in the in the part of the diagnosis, is probably where the patient is coming from the gastroenterology um, from the gastroenterology uh, department. But with the complications that we are having during treatment, we will bring patients back to that department. So I think we need everyone, and of course the pathologists. We have a pathologist um, here, and we need the pathologist not only for the tissue diagnosis, but also to do a, a proper molecular assessment of, of the tumor. So really multidisciplinary, and encourage everyone to discuss every patient with cholangiocarcinoma if, in an MDT at the time of the first diagnosis, so we can plan treatment forward. So I think that's really critically important and also in the ESMO guideline and also based on the work you have done. I mean, we have all these different uh, prognostic <coughs> factors. We have patients with liver-limited disease where we can also apply local therapies, which also needs to be evaluated once patients have started treatment. So maybe a question for both of you. We have the multidisciplinary tumor board where we also discuss like local and systemic therapies, but we also have the molecular tumor board. Yeah? So would you, or in your clinical practice, do you discuss all these patients in the same tumor board or do we have a specific molecular tumor board where we really focus on the genetic alterations and which options are available for the patient? Well, I don't have an established molecular tumor board. It's something that I will really like to build on because I think it's very important. It's not only about requesting molecular profiling but understanding the issues. So I think we probably need to have two different uh, MDTs. One is the MDT where you are planning the treatment pathway, what we see in this slide, and probably separate a, um, a molecular tumor board where you look at that NGS result that you have, that you have received, that where you will sit down with pathologists but also, for example, with people from genetics to assess germline alterations or whether there could be a germline alteration. And if you find something, of course, assessment of uh, high-risk uh, uh, syndromes like Lynch, for example, and things like that. 
Well, in, in our organization, usually we discuss in the molecular tumor board only patients that carry genomic alteration that are not approved biomarkers and for which there is a you know, discussion on how to treat the patient, the role in clinical trials and so on. But, I mean, the patients that come up with the approved biomarkers we discuss directly in the multidisciplinary team where the pathologists and molecular biologists are there. It's very important also that you discuss from the beginning because based on the tissue, that you're available, you can decide different you know, approach also for testing. But if we have a large amount of tissue, we go for large panels. But you know, if uh, the, uh, we have a tiny amount of tissue, we will go only for a focus panel. And this is very important because you want really to optimize the, the tissue that you have to, to get sure that patient receives all the biomarker tests. Yeah. If I can add to that, and in my institution, there is a one multidisciplinary team focused on the molecular alterations, like a molecular tumor board, actually. But is what uh, Nicola was saying is really for approved drugs. And what happens in cholangiocarcinoma is that a lot of the drugs are not really approved, so the patients do not fall into that MDT. And I think we need an MDT that will really look into results more widely and really looking into something that maybe you find a clinical trial for that patient. Yeah. So I think in, in Germany we have started to establish these centers of personalized medicine and we also have established our molecular tumor board. And I can say it's not only a lot of fun to do that because it's really exciting and really interesting and the field is moving so fast and there's nobody who's perfect, right? I mean, there are so many genetic alterations and I'm always surprised what else you can find, right? I mean, you need to understand the different impact of, even if you're talking about the same gene, Different alterations can have different impact and Im imply different therapies. So I think I can only advertise you, you need to, I mean, if you're really serious about carcinoma, you need to have a molecular tumor board. Yeah, and I think, I mean, like 30% of our time, we are trying to understand which tests have been used, right? Which tissue, which liquid biopsy, what are the results, and do we need to, to redo the testing, which is required in the majority of cases, to be really honest, yeah. Yeah, and actually, I receive almost uh, every other day a call or a WhatsApp from colleagues. It's not only about cholangiocarcinoma, because they really don't understand the results. And then when I, I try to help them, what uh, comes up is that sometimes patients have been screened only for mutation and not for fusions, yeah. or maybe they were screened for liquid biopsy, and they come with a negative results, but you know, we release a recommendation that if you don't find any genetic alteration in liquid biopsy, the result is not negative, it's non-informative, which means yeah. that you have to do something else. So it's a lot of confusion, and I understand we need a lot of education in this field, but please look closely to the referral that you get, in particular when patient has been tested in a different institution. If you're not sure, go back to your pathologist, to your molecular biologist, to get help to interpret and really understand whether the patient was really tested for all the relevant biomarkers. Yeah, I think that's a very important point because I always got the point, uh, sometimes for second opinion, the notion, okay, there's no druggable alteration. So, and then I said, what, what do you mean? There's no alteration, there's no druggable alteration. What do you mean? Yeah, there's nothing. Yeah, what do you mean with nothing? Yeah, and then you go back and try to see. And if there's no driver, right, then you have the wrong test because there's always something, right? And that there's no druggable, no alteration. I mean, this is, you hardly will find these patients. Yeah? Therefore, understanding the test is critical um, important. Um, so we have now a patient who, who started on, on, on gemcitib and cisplatin. At the time, we, the, the data for Topaz and Keynote 966 have not yet been published, but he has received molecular profiling and there was one of these multiple um, fusions, FJF2 fusions, um, and one uh, point we would now need to discuss is um, what 
do we need, uh, I mean, we would like to ask you, so what, what do we need to consider about NGS testing in your clinical practice? So maybe, Angla, you can comment to what, what would be the most important barrier for you and Normano in, in your clinic, what are the most important barriers? I think um, the access to tissue is a very, very big mm -hmm. problem, and that's where I think that CT DNA can sometimes be very helpful. Yeah. But something that I would like to highlight as well is that NGS testing is not available in every country for all diagnoses. For example, in Spain, it's not funded by the government for cholangiocarcinoma. So if you are in a situation like that, I will encourage you to speak to the phase one unit in your institution or around you, because there are lots, lots of phase one clinical trials where you can act actually access molecular profiling for free for patients. So there is always a way of getting NGS, even if it is not funded. That's my point of view. Yeah, actually, it depends on, in different countries, we found different barriers. Maybe, basically, we know that in Southern Europe, the main barrier for uh, NGS testing is presented by reimbursement, because there is capability, but reimbursement is not in place. But there are some countries in which still there's a lack of capability of NGS testing. So there are clearly different levels of problems that need to be solved. Tissue is always a problem, but if you have available different techniques, even with liquid biopsy, you know, you run a liquid biopsy, maybe as a low sensitivity for fusion, but if you find an IDH1 mutation, you don't need to, to go back to the tissue. Usually these genomic alterations are mutually exclusive, so you can at least start you know, a treatment for the IDH1 mutation. So, but this comes really from experience, and we need a lot of education in the field. Yeah, so I think it's good to see or interesting to see that, I mean, tissue is an issue. I mean, we, we need to have enough tissue to get um, really the, the biopsies. And I think there are two points also to consider. Tissue is not a tissue, right? You need to have tumor cells. And specifically in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, you have really sometimes a very high stroma content. Yeah? And if you sequence the stroma, um, you will not get any data, and this could be the negative result. So you really, again, need to talk to your pathologist that micro or macro dissection is performed, that you really sequence the tumor sites. Yeah? And if you do not get enough tumor, you can do liquid biopsy. And I think it's also important to highlight you not only can use blood, you can also use bile. Yeah? So I think there are already a lot of publications out there showing that you can really use bile for profiling. Yeah? And we also have done it in our clinic. There's a lot of DNA in the bile, and you can really apply the same test as you do for blood, for bile. And you can also detect the druggable alterations in, in the bile, which could be really interesting if you're unable to get um, uh, tissue, enough tissue, tumor tissue for, um, or tumor cells for sequencing. Yeah, actually, the use of NGS, this, this was really run in 2020, 2021, this survey. And really, the, the use of NGS in Europe is quite disappointing. On average, only 10% of patients that require biomarker tests were tested with NGS. In some countries, I mean, however, the, the level is even much lower. So reimbursement is an issue, but also probably education, even you know, As Angela was saying, sometimes you know, even oncologists don't know all, all the opportunities that there are, maybe through clinical trials, you know, in order to get uh, genome profiling, sometimes even comprehensive genome profiling. But in Eastern European countries, there's a real, clear lack of capability. We involved also patients in this survey, so it's not only the opinion of the oncologists and pathologists, but also what really uh, patients need to do. And you know, so in some countries, there are some reference centers, but patients have to drive for 300 kilometers to bring the, the, the tissue from a place to the other. So these are barriers that we need to solve if we really to implement precision oncology in Europe. And uh, actually, we are working on this. Hopefully, we will we'll get some news also from the European Commission.
Okay, so now we move on um, with our patient. So we, he started on GEMCIS, um, then molecular profiling was performed during first-line treatment. Um, after, here, after seven months, the patient had progressive disease, as you would expect it also. And now um, the question is, how would you treat this patient? And I think at that time it was very obvious there were not too many FGFR inhibitors um, available and he was basically treated um, with pemigazinib based on the, um, uh, on the FGFR2 um, fusion. So now we have another question for you. Availability of an FGFR inhibitor as a therapeutic option in your practice for FGFR2 fusion positive hulangiocarcinomas. So Anglau, how is it in your, it's I mean, in the UK maybe and also in Spain? In, in the UK, uh, it is now reimbursed. Uh, in Spain, it's not reimbursed and we have a very, very big issue because we cannot access pemigatinib, which is FDA and EMA approved. Um, we will see what happens with futivatinib, but uh, at the moment, the only way of accessing an FGFR inhibitor in Spain is through a clinical trial. We have a lot of clinical trials, which is good, but it's not not good that we cannot access pemigatinib, to be honest. Yeah, pemigat is now reimbursed in Italy, I think, so at least. I think we really need to rethink how we can approach this, I think, problem in the, in the future. How can we proceed? I mean, we, we have a, a disease with a really dismal prognosis, median overall survival of around one year. We have now druggable alterations. We have clinical evidence. <clears throat> of course, we need to decide what is the value of this um, evidence and what do we consider as a positive readout, but I think the data I have shown you with this disease control rates of 80 to 100 percent response rate or around 40 percent is clearly clinically um, meaningful and I think we need to have new strategies. I mean, first of all, how we evaluate these drugs and how we can bring them faster into the clinic and I think it's, it's today really hard to accept that there's no um, FGFR inhibitor are really widely available in, in, in Europe, at least to my opinion. We have a similar question for IDH ramifications, <laughs> which I think is at least as important for the FGFR inhibitors. We do not yet have so many FGFR inhi uh, IDH1 inhibitors available as we do have FGFR inhibitors, but we do have one with a phase three evidence. And here again, the question, what is your, um, um, uh, what is your problem, if you like? In, in Spain, we still don't know, so we are waiting to see whether it will be reimbursed. So we have Futibatinib for FGFR and uh, Ibocidinib at similar stages, I will say, you're still waiting to hear one first opinion, while for Pemigatinib it was rejected, and we are still waiting to see whether that could be rescued. So for IDH, we are still hopeful. We will see. Yeah, Germany is the only country I think, in Europe in which when there's EMA approval, automatically is reimbursed. So in all the other countries, there are huge delays and sometimes huge long discussions. Um, so it's, it's, it's really tough. I mean, we do know what we can treat, but we do not have the, the, uh, the possibility. So here we need to change something. Um, so here, again, this patient um, was treated with pemigatinib, however, on whichever way. Um, eventually, the patient had progressive disease, and now the question is, what would you do next? And maybe, Angela, normally you can comment. So what would be you, your recommendation? What would you do next? Well, I, I think um, depending on what you have available, but uh, you have an FGFR2 fusion, and I think understanding mechanism of resistance will be important. If you could access a second FGFR inhibitor within a clinical trial, I would definitely go for that. Otherwise, you have data for, for chemotherapy in the second line uh, setting with Folfox, if there is no significant neuropathy or adenotic based chemotherapy, probably. 
when I say that in an academic setting, it might make sense to retest the patients, and according also to the recommendation from ISMO, for patients that become resistant, liquid biopsy might be the first option. So would you retest the patient if you can? I think it relies a lot on what you can do also with the information, right? Yeah. If you have a clinical trial, yeah. I will, yeah. 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 So again, same problem. I mean, if you Maybe do not, not have, convincing. Yeah, if you, it's not black and white. Yeah. But I think if you do not have the drugs available, of course, Makes it might sense. be meaningless to, to do that. So I completely understand. So next slide, please. Okay, so he was retested. He has an on-target resistance mutation, as we really frequently see it, specifically in the responders to Pemigatinepia. And I think this is really an exciting opportunity to apply sequential targeted therapies. Yeah, and Futibatinib has been predicted and has been shown in first um, um, case reports that Futibatinib can be really active in, in these cases. And so he was probably treated in Germany, so he had access to Pemigatinib and Futibatinib. We need to come to an end. Um, I, I strongly recommend, as we have just discussed before, to really discuss these patients because sometimes it's really hard to, to decide is local therapy possible, can be reapplied, and about the targeted therapies I think we have really discussed in detail. So um, I think now we can maybe come to our questions. We have some, I think, very interesting questions. And one is, um, so we have seen all the data in, in the second-line setting. And one question is, is there a future for targeted therapies in the first-line setting? So what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I, hopefully, yes. Hopefully, yes. But I, I think it's a challenging uh, situation. So um, just in case not everyone is, is fully aware, um, the problem with, for example, let's put a VFR as an example because it's what is happening. The VFR2 uh, inhibitors, well, the VFR inhibitors were being tested in the second line setting and with the very promising data that we saw from ARNT previously, they were brought into the first line setting and there were three clinical trials open almost at the same time comparing the FGFR inhibitors versus this platinum cytobine chemotherapy in the first-line setting. And the issue was recruitment. We couldn't really recruit nicely into these patients because of many reasons, um, one of them being the tissue, the time to having the test, but also the fact that we started to see that these fusions were less frequent than what we expected. Because of this, two of these trials are now stopped, recruitment. Uh, they, they are not continuing, and there is only one clinical trial moving forward. So hopefully, yes, there is a future in the first-line setting, but I think we need to work all of us together into how do we make these clinical trials feasible, how do we work the healthcare providers with the pharma companies to make them really something that we can deliver so we are not really losing this opportunity for our patients. I think we have good responses in the second-line setting. Why are, are we not going to see same activity in the first-line setting? I think there is a future, but we just need to work together. Yeah, we do expect that you know these drugs may be even more effective in first line. The problem is that we need to improve diagnostics. If we don't improve diagnostics, it will be not possible to te to treat patients in first line. So we have to improve on the timing, on the uh, uh, efficacy also, and uh, the sensitivity of the test that we run. And if we don't remove this barrier, I mean, we'll have a paradoxical situation in which the drug is there, but the patient cannot access uh, true drug because uh, we don't know about the biomarkers. So this is something we need to work on together.
Yeah, and we need a short turnaround time, right, that we can Definitely. really uh, include these patients in first-line trials because now patients would like to wait for two or three weeks for the treatment. And this is why you have to introduce the test as yeah. soon as possible yeah. because if you start to do now, then when you feel the drug will come to the first line, then we have more chance to yearly to treat your patients. Yeah. Okay, so the next question is also a little bit in the direction about resistance mechanism, and I think we have talked a lot about FGFR2 um, fusions and on-target resistance mutations, which can be seen. So what about IDH1 mutations? And if you have a patient treated on um, with an um, IDH1 with ibozidinib, with an IDH1 inhibitor, so at the time of progression, would you look for, would you do another biopsy and look for resistance mechanism? I think for I think for IVH one we probably know less in the way that we have had less drugs and therefore less uh, less translational research associated. There are some publications looking into resistant mutations and similar stories to what we see with FGFR, but I don't think we have uh, a lot of options of doing a rechallenge with another IDH1 inhibitor. So um, I would probably encourage more the analysis of the mutations in the FGF for FGFR, not maybe so much for IDH, but still interested to do any translational research that we can if we have a clinical trial open, of course. Yeah, I fully agree. Actually, you test if you have a, a, an option. If you are in academic centers, maybe, and you have the funds, of course, to do that, it might be a good idea to test maybe with liquid biopsy that is non-invasive because you start to collect data and maybe this will be uh, useful for the future. We do expect that we'll have other inhibitors, DH1 and DH2, that, that are coming, and maybe you can use these for if there is no cross-resistance. So I think the next question is really interesting, and it's a little bit in the direction to my talk at ASCO. So is there a best-in-class FGFR inhibitor? Yeah, so how should we and can we treat our patients? We have now so many different FGFR inhibitors, sometimes I think more inhibitors than patients at a certain time in my clinic. And we have now seen the efficacy data, the response rate going up to 70%. We have talked about the sequential approach. So the question is, should we start with the newest FGFR inhibitor? Is it ready for prime time to think about sequential therapy? So starting with pimigatinib, then going to futibatinib realize. So how do you do it in clinical practice if you would have the chance, of course? I mean, if you would practice in Germany. If, if I could choose, I think it would make sense to do some sequential treatment and always thinking ahead and thinking on the future. And if I could have more than one FGFR inhibitors and I knew for sure that they were going to be available, then yes, I think starting with, with pemigatinib and you leaving the other FGFR inhibitors for future is what I will do. The reality is not that, and right now I rely on availability and whatever I have available I, I use. And I think the data from Relay are really, really uh, encouraging, but I agree we need a longer follow-up and, and more patients as well. I think the, the rule in oncology, you start always the most active treatment, so I will go for that. Unfortunately, we will never have head-to-head -head comparison. That's one of the issues. But we will do that because, you know, it's true that sequential treatment is an option, but there are patients that will not develop any FGFR mutation, but other maximum resistance, and they will be resistant also to other FGFR inhibitors. So... My suggestion, start with the most active, then you go with the liquid biopsy. If you find a non-cross-reactive resistant mutation, maybe you can go do sequential treatment. Yeah, so I agree. 
the only point or question I have: what defines most active? Yeah, and it's oh, maybe, that's your job, no mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe not response rate. Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand whether the high response rate really translates in a long PFS and really prevents the development of new on-target or off-target resistance alterations. I think this is really the missing piece in the relay data, which are for sure interesting, but we really need to understand does this translate in a significantly and clinically meaningful longer PFS? Yeah, I, I agree. I think we see a high response rate, but we need to know whether that is really correlating with a longer yeah. the duration of response when yeah. we have longer longer data. And also, we don't really understand the mechanism of resistance to relay is too yes. early also. Yes. So the next point is interesting, and it would combine um, the the two new um, treatment approaches in carcinoma, targeted therapy and immunotherapy. Can we combine targeted therapy and immunotherapy Therapy. And I think we have a very good, good understanding that the drivers do not only affect the tumor itself, but also the tumor microenvironment. So, and specifically for IDH1 mutations, we have seen very interesting preclinical data that a combination of um, IDH1 inhibition plus CTLF4 inhibition could be a very interesting um, approach. So maybe Normano and Angela, what, what are your thoughts on combining targeted and I.O.? I, I think it's a very, very interesting topic and definitely there are a lot of clinical trials ongoing looking into these combinations. As you said, IDH1 tumors are considered to be maybe more cold and combination with IO could make sense given concomitantly with the IDH1 inhibitor. Um, and with FGFR is, is kind of the same. I think we don't really understand a lot of what happens in the tumor microenvironment when we give these treatments. So when do we need to include the immunotherapy? Is this from the beginning? Is this after sometime on treatment with the FGFR inhibitor and the same with chemotherapy as well, but definitely a future there with combination. So one question is... Actually, if I can, IDH1 inhibitors have a peculiar maximum of, uh, of action, so this is also justified. But, but the point is that we know that no all patients that carry a genomic alteration will respond at the same time, in the same, same, same manner. For example, for FGFR2 inhibitors, we already have some uh, information that commutation might really reduce the activity of, the, of these FGFR inhibitors. So in this patient, maybe combination makes a sense. So we'll be in the future adding to a stratification of patients. We will have some that will benefit only of a target therapy, others in which we need to make combination, and maybe some it would be better to use chemotherapy alone. So we will see. Uh, one question is... Um about Tim, the question was, Tim, if Tim would not have an on-target resistance mutation, would he have also been treated with um, fudibatinib? I mean, if it would be available, I probably would do it, but my expectations would be extremely low. So in those patients with off-target resistance, we have hardly seen any efficacy. Yeah. And would you go for chemotherapy in that scenario? Right, then? right. And actually, sometimes chemotherapy, I mean, there are some experiences in lung cancer, might reset the molecular landscape of the tumor, and then you might even think about a rechallenge, and you can do this maybe using also liquid biopsy for so sometimes it's, it's really difficult to make decisions, and we have different options. So we may have patients with druggable alterations, sometimes IDH1 and FGFR2 mutations, for example. Sometimes we have patients with a TMB high or a high PDL1 expression, and a target um, alteration. So how do you decide on chemo, immunotherapy, or targeted therapy? What is your most important 
point for decision making? I, I think, well, to me, unfortunately, it's based on access and what I have available mm. at that point. But if I could choose, uh, I will probably, if I have an FGFR2 fusion, I will probably prioritize the FGFR2 fusion because we see more responses. And also, I will look into the frequency of that alteration. So it's not the same to have above of a 50% or 1% for, for looking into what you want to target. So I will probably take into account those, those two, two factors, but availability is the, is the issue also. Actually, when, when you test with larger partners, you can find the different drivers. And the problem is to understand which is the primary driver. It's not easy. Uh, Alert frequency can be a, a, a tool, but you know, for future, this is not available. The frequency that you see when you do RNA sequencing is not a allelic frequency of the fusion. Please be aware. That's the frequency of the transcript, something completely different. So, I, I mean, of course, you, you can use some, you can have to discuss in the multisphere team and talk to the biologist, and at the end, you will take a decision. One reason, one of the issues will be the allelic frequency, but it's not the only one you have to take in consideration. Okay, so maybe we can also, do we need to consider preclinical evidence? I mean, sometimes should we now start reading about yeah, mouse we, models? We, we do some fire, but, you know, that's then speculation because, you know, sometimes the, what you see in the cell lines is never produced. And therefore, the H, IDH1 inhibitors, you expect, they induce differentiation. And so you don't expect to have too much shrinkage. So it's completely different now what you're looking for. Okay, so I think we have addressed most of the questions. Are there any other? What is your experience with regorafenib in BTC? So any experience with regorafenib? No, no personal experience. There was a clinical trial com uh, in the second line setting comparing regorafenib with placebo, and there was some activity in progression-free survival, but I think the benefit is very modest and mm. is not something that I use in my clinical practice. And maybe one question again, maybe for Normano. So, in regarding IO biomarker, TMB, PDL1 expression, do you think it's. What do we, what yeah, do we, now for, for the TMB, there are now new data we presented, ASCO, there's always data pros and cons. My feeling is that we need to have biomarkers of the tumor, so TMB could be one, but we need also to combine with the biomarkers from the tumor microenvironment. And there are some fancy papers published in uh, mm -hmm. Cell showing that if you combine these two types of biomarkers, you can really improve the selection of patients that might benefit from immune therapy. This will be at least uh, the next frontier of uh, IoT biomarker testing, I think. Okay, perfect. Um, thank you very much, and have a great ESMO GI 2023. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.